Hi, I would like to welcome our guest to uh, another episode of the Islamic Dilemma Show. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Al Fadi, and uh, with me today, uh, my special guest, Bill Warner. Bill, how are you? Delighted to be here. Uh, today's episode uh, will focus on the Quran again, and we will continue with our discussions regarding the uh, importance of studying the Quran. And before we do that, I'd like to share with you from my own experience as a former Muslim that I have always viewed the Quran to be a perfect book that is the guidance for my life, uh, that I had to follow it uh, to the letter if I want to please uh, the God of Islam, basically, and if I want to imitate the Prophet of Islam. And at the same time, I never ever uh, thought that the Quran uh, have any issues or contradictions or things uh, that I need to be concerned about. Until, of course, I left Islam and I followed Christ, and at that point, through my search and, and through my analyses, uh, and shall I say critical analyses, I discovered that the Quran actually is not a perfect book at all, and in fact, it has a lot of serious issues that demand uh, Muslim people in particular to look into it, which is things that uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to cover in uh, the book that we just released, The Quran Dilemma. Uh, Bill, you have been studying the Quran, as you have stated before. Mm -hmm. Now, why do you think the Quran is an important book to analyze, even for non-Muslims? Well, you've just mentioned part of it, which is in your own introduction in relation to the Quran. When you read the Quran, you are reading a document that most Muslims accept as being absolutely perfect, without error. And, but the other thing that you've stated, and I've learned this as well, and this is another reason for non-Muslims to know it, is that it turns out that a lot of Muslims I've talked with don't really know that much about the Quran. Now, what is ironic is that most non-Muslims think when you ask a Muslim, not only is the Quran perfect, but there's this weird thing that everybody presumes that every Muslim knows the Quran perfectly. True, because you're indoctrinated as a Muslim person. I mean, they teach you the Quran. In my case, at least, uh, where I grew up in Saudi Arabia, they teach you the, uh, uh, everything about Islam, the Quran, and religion uh, from a very young age. Uh, I remember daily, uh, five days a week, uh, every day, at least a couple of hours studying religion all the time. And we're not talking about comparative religion here. Right. Uh, you don't study like anything about Christianity and compare to Islam, or Judaism and compare to Islam, or anything else like the isms that you mentioned and compare to Islam. No, you study Islam and everything else is obsolete, is not good. That's right. all you hear about, you know. So you have to remember that and keep focusing on studying Islam. And of course, when it comes to the Quran, it is thought of to be the absolute word of God. And that's where the fear uh, stems from. Because every Muslim thinks like, I do not dare to question what God is saying. Yet really in reality, when you look at what God is saying in this book, actually we as humans can say much better. Well... We can certainly say it with less contradiction and with better order so that it's logical. Uh, sure. Now, what about uh, the importance of studying uh, the Quran, for instance, when it comes to Sharia law? Well, Sharia, which we will discuss later, is really based on two things. One is the Quran, Allah, and the other is the Sunnah, or the practice of Muhammad. So you right. have to, if you're going to understand Sharia at all, you have to understand one of its legs, one of the things it rests on. That is very true, and uh, when we talk about Sharia, we'll, we'll share uh, more information about that, uh, that indeed it relies mainly on these 
two major sources in addition to an additional source that we call it also the consensus uh, of uh, the Islamic yes. scholars. Now, um, for me as a former Muslim also, uh, knowing the Quran was important for me to know the rituals that I have to do. Mm -hmm. So as a Muslim, I needed to know, for instance, uh, that I'm commanded to pray or I'm commanded to fast or I'm commanded to tithe. Uh, I'm also commanded to perform the pilgrimage and, and a whole, uh, you know, other things too that as a Muslim I needed to know. And the source for that was the Quran first. Second, you would go to the tradition of the Prophet to even right. get more uh, interpretation of his understanding of certain things. What's so puzzling though, that if you were to take the, uh, the, the hadith or the tradition of the Prophet and his biography out of the picture, you really, as a Muslim, you'll be lacking certain important things. For instance, you wouldn't know that you have to pray five times a day, for instance. That's not mentioned in the Quran. Right. Uh, prayer calling is not mentioned in the Quran, of course. Uh, and there is a whole lot of other teachings that if you are not going to study what Muhammad taught about them, you're not going to be able to learn it just from the Quran. And I find this is troubling. How can I not learn what God wants me to do from his own word? What is but, your thought on that? Well... As you know, the very prayers that you use as a Muslim are not found in the Quran. They're instead found in the traditions of Muhammad. And that's one of the things that's puzzling about the Quran is how incomplete it is. There's just all manner of material that a Muslim needs to practice, but you don't know how if you just depend on the Quran. That is true. Uh, other troubling thing that the Quran will teach, for instance, uh, the fact that uh, jihad is something that is commanded of every true Muslim. And for me, in my case, as I mentioned in my uh, brief testimony, that I wanted to go and fight for God. And the importance for that for me was to die as a martyr. And if I die as a martyr, then I am going to paradise. And paradise is the highest level of heaven. And my sins are forgiven. Because Islam doesn't give you any guarantee of salvation, except yeah. when you do something like this. Right. And that's what the Quran is going to help you with. Chapter 5 and chapter 9 of the Quran are considered to be the latest two chapters that are revealed, which lead us to the doctrine that is absolutely dangerous, and the, that's the doctrine of abrogation or cancellation. That's where the radicals use, basically, and state that all of the peaceful verses, even including the one that says there is no compulsion in religion, have been canceled. Mm -hmm. I mean... Did you encounter any difficulties with trying to reconcile the two sides, or I like your terminology, the two Qurans, basically? Right. Well, when you're first reading it, there is the confusion of like, well, which is it? Is it warm and fuzzy, or is it really bad? Uh, and, and so you're left with the contradictions. What, what do I believe here, really, is what it comes down to. Exactly. Uh, it, it's like a dual personality. It, and so you're very confused. And then, of course, we do find out that, well, no, there is a process for sorting out the confusion. But, as you point out, the process for sorting out the confusion is that jihad is good. Tolerance is weak. Tolerance is really for a weak person, and which was true of Muhammad's life. He was tolerant when he was weak, but when he became strong, not so much. Exactly. Uh, now... The Quran as a book, uh, if I want to just illustrate its size uh, for those at least who are familiar with the Bible, uh, the Quran is about two-thirds the size of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. 
the current Quran, and I want to underline the word current Quran, because truly we do not know, of course, if this is the true Quran that was revealed by the Prophet of Islam. When we talk about how it was collected, uh, we are going to share more details about why we believe that what we have in our hands today is really not the complete Quran that was revealed by the so-called Prophet of Islam. Uh, this Quran has 114 chapters, as you know, Bill. And the way it's organized, really, it's not chronological. Not at and all. And that's even troubling, too. If you want to study something, you are going to struggle with finding out the entire history behind its revelation and how it fits together as a book. Uh, one of the things I tell people to understand the Quran, what I call the bookstore Quran, is that imagine you took your favorite mystery novel, cut off the spine, and then rearranged the story in terms of the length of the chapter, which is the way the bookstore Quran is done. And then I gave you my favorite mystery book and told you to read it. You'd try for a while and you'd go, this doesn't make any sense at all. The murder didn't happen until the next to the last chapter. This does not make any sense. So that's the way the Quran is. It's like the mystery book with the story removed because of the way the chapters are ordered. That is true. When it comes to the number of verses, for instance, um, uh, there is a debate. Some will say it's 6200 or mm -hmm. 6204. 6232, 6234, 6236. And you look and you say, well, how many verses do we have in the Quran? And these are mere human who are deciding mm -hmm. the number of verses. Nevertheless, of course, the names of these chapters, at least uh, uh, for, from our studies, uh, we know that Muhammad did not really label every no. single one of them. Some of them were known in his time. Yes, he did reference some of them, and we want to be uh, fair about that. But not all the Quran was actually uh, referenced in terms of its chapters and the organization of those chapters. In fact, the way the Quran is organized, it's almost similar to how the prophets in the Old Testament was organized, basically starting from the largest mm -hmm. to the smallest. But even when you look at the Old Testament, the fact that it's organized that way from the largest to the smallest, you can still tell just by looking at the introduction of each of these books, when the book was written, who wrote it, which king was living at that time, and you can still fit it together chronologically in an easy way. You know, there's something here that if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it is a wonder, it tells wonderful stories. It's great storytelling. The thing that, another thing that's odd about the Quran is, it's dreadful storytelling. A lot of times at the beginning of the story, you're left, what are we really talking about here? So there's another incompleteness here, which is, Allah turns out to be not a very good storyteller. Well, you know, Bill, you're fortunate that I am a former Muslim because if <laughs> I would have heard you say this about the Quran when I wasn't, uh, when I was still following <laughs> Islam, then definitely uh, I probably would have been upset. <laughs> and this is the truth. Uh, you cannot really criticize this book at all. Mm -hmm. And everybody would want to tell you that it is a perfect book preserved in heaven. And the question is, if it's preserved in heaven, then why did God not reveal the whole thing all at once? All at once. It would have saved all of us the trouble <laughs> of, of trouble. trying to figure out which part fits where. In fact, um, you know, you mentioned yesterday that there were some troubling issues with you, at least, when you were trying to read the Quran in terms of its cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate further on that? Well, it, it, one image I have is of a head of cabbage that's been chopped up and then put into a bowl. Now we started off with something that was integral and easy to recognize, but when you put it all in the bowl, 
it's like it's hard to even tell what was the original form of this. You suspect as you're reading it that at one time this all made sense, but it's like it's been run through a blender. And we know the blender was, we took and just put the longest chapter in the beginning and then, and so it doesn't cohere, it doesn't, there's not a progression. Yeah. Well, uh, Bill, you know, I'm, I'm glad to tell you that you're not alone uh, in terms of your struggle about the Quran. I'm, I'm going to use just two examples, uh, one of a Christian apologist and another one of a well-known Islamic commentator mm -hmm. and exegete, uh, exegetes of the Quran. Uh, the first uh, uh, slide here we're showing is by what we call Al-Kindi Apology. And Al-Kindi was a Christian apologist who was debating another Muslim mm -hmm. uh, apologist around the 9th century A.D. or so. This is what he says about the Quran in his comments. He said, when the poets compose their poetry and weigh it to make sure that it is to the proper scale, which is harder and more precise in meaning, this is what it says, it stays cohesive. He's talking about poems now. He's saying the poems are much better structured than the Quran. And uh, they're choosing the pure, crystal clear, and completely Arabic words with good, consistent meaning and more perfect adhering to the rules. Now, we were talking before the start of the show that we always think, as, well, as a former Muslim, we thought that the Quran is the standard to follow when it comes to the Arabic language. That's what I've been told. The perfect manual for perfect Arabic is the Quran. But uh, basically, what Al-Kindi is saying is that, here is his debate. For your book, telling the Muslim scholar, meaning the Quran, is full of broken rhythm. Mm -hmm. Is that what you experienced when you were reading it? Well, now, of course, I don't read Arabic and don't read the rhythm. But I want to uh, point out to the studio audience who may not be aware of the fact, this talking about poetry is very important because to the Arabs of Muhammad's day to be a poet was to be a person of stature and to be good at it was like being it was an incredibly important part of the culture so some since poetry does not figure so heavily in our culture some people may think wow the poetry what difference does that make but for the Arab particularly of Muhammad's day this was overwhelmingly important that is absolutely true and you know Bill we will continue with our discussion after a brief break pressure slowly building, an explosion that shocked the world, a coastline forever changed, the oil impossible to remove, nothing could destroy it until the source was found, until that source was sealed. To uncover the source of Islamic terror, read the Quran Dilemma, Islam Unplugged. Hi, we welcome you back uh, to our show, The Islamic Dilemma. Bill, we were discussing the Quran, basically, mm -hmm. and we were saying that it's a, a incoherent in its structure. In fact, we used an example of one of the Christian apologists, Al-Kindi, uh, around the 9th century, where he himself also was complaining about the same thing that you have just observed right now in the uh, 21st century. So, uh, obviously, the issue is still the same and hasn't mm -hmm. changed. Now, at least someone say that you're using an example of a Christian mm -hmm. who is, by the way, was an Arabic-speaking Christian. And you say, well, he's biased, he has an agenda, uh, he hates Islam, you know, blah, 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 and all these things. Well, that's fine. 
Uh, how about if we use an example from one well-known Islamic scholar, commentator of the Quran. That's basically one of his profession, basically, to study the Quran, to analyze the Quran, to interpret the Quran, and to write commentaries on it. His name is Al-Razi, Abu Bakr Al-Razi, and he's well-known. He's, he's like a household name, mm -hmm. in fact. Anytime you mention Al-Razi, most people at least recognize his name, even if they didn't know his work. Mm -hmm. This is what Al-Razi was saying, and we're going to show this slide also on the screen. He said, complaining, by the way, about the challenge of the Quran. Remember this? Uh, you know, in uh, one of previous episodes, we said that the Quran challenges people to come up with a surah, a chapter like it, mm -hmm. meaning you can never come right. up with anything identical. So... He was really aggravated by this challenge. And this is what he said. He said, if you want one like it in terms of better words, we can get you a thousand like it. <laughs> I mean, in other words, he's saying it is piece of cake. Right. I can do it. I mean, it's, it's doable. It's right. not a problem at all. Right. Now, this is very powerful when you hear someone uh, of his statue, basically, and his position agreeing with the rest of us that this challenge is just a challenge that is... Worthless. Mm -hmm. That means nothing, basically. In, in fact, he even struggled with the fact that the Quran calls itself to be a miracle by itself. He didn't think that the Quran has such a power to claim itself to be a miracle because that's basically what Muhammad always claimed. All along, he says, my only miracle that I can offer you is the Quran. Quran. Whenever he's challenged to show a sign, a miracle, he would say, well, the Quran is my only miracle. Right. Every verse is a miracle. Exactly, because the verse in Arabic means ayah, and ayah means sign, so every single verse in the Quran is a miracle. The only problem is this. Those verses were not numbered until almost the 19th century, so we don't even know which verses we're talking about here and how they were revealed. Right. So uh, even, even that's going to cause a problem. Now, um, here is what he was saying. He's saying um, that the, the Quran actually is a book that has repetitions. Oh. The Quran has uh, a lot of lengthy stories that, in his uh, uh, view, is meaningless. And he also has a problem with the fact that uh, the Quran borrows from a lot of outside sources that are not even divine. Enormously. Exactly. Now, I want to show also our viewers an example, a very simple example, as a matter of fact, of something that might relate to what we're talking about. Uh, this is a very small chapter in the Quran called uh, the chapter of the abundance. Uh, the other name is Al-Kawthar, and we'll talk about the meaning of that word. It's chapter 108 of the Quran. It's three verses only. And we're going to see now these three verses. Actually, I was reading commentators on it yesterday, one of which called Al-Tabari, who is the closest to action. He lived around the 9th century A.D., almost 200 to 300 years after the time of Muhammad. He invested over than 12 pages trying to explain the dilemmas found in these three verses. Mm. And I can assure you, he did not invest that much time because there is a miracle in this verse. No, because there is some contradictions and trouble in this particular chapter. This is what it says, and I think the viewer will see it on the screen. It says, surely we have given you the kawthar. Now, the God of Islam is talking to Muhammad and saying, we have given you something called the kawthar. Well, the commentators struggled with, what does this mean? What it means, they said, it could be a river in heaven. Now, Bill, do you know how heaven looks like? No. So why should I believe you when you tell me that there is a river in heaven and this is its name? And what is the significance of that for me 
as, let's say, a Muslim person? How is this going to impact me as a Muslim person that God gave Muhammad a river in heaven? Do you have any comments on this? No, but I have noticed one thing. Frequently, we can see the origin of the Quran and its desertness in that heaven is frequently portrayed as a very physical place and water is there. And you can tell that the image is... So the image here is intended to be poetic to the, to the desert Arab, which is this is a cool, serene place. But we don't know anything about it at all. I'm just filling in here. Yes, because um, to me, if God wants me to learn something, an application, mm -hmm. a practical thing that will help me in the here and now, I must know of something that I can relate to. It's almost, let's say, like God will say, well, you're going to be punished by a creature in hell. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? I don't know what this creature is. I'm not intimidated because I don't even know the size of this creature or the look of this creature. Mm -hmm. But when God begins to talk to me in a language that I can relate to, then I would begin to think even in a better way. So one of the meanings was a river in heaven. Another meaning, it's a lake in heaven. A third meaning, it could be that God blessed Muhammad abundantly. Or it could be that this word meant that it is the gift of prophecy or the gift of Islam. Well, if the Arabs of that day struggled in understanding one word, imagine now their struggle with the rest of the Quran, which is filled with, by the way, words that are mysterious, that mm -hmm. are weird, that have no meaning sometimes. In fact, there is those letters that we call the muqattat uh, or the mysterious ones, where it's, it starts like with an alphabet letter like mm -hmm. uh, alif or a, and you say, well, what is this? Well, some say, well, it's a, it's a attention grabber. Attention grabber? For what? <laughs> well, you, you grab my attention for sure. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean? <laughs> and, and things of that effect. But I want to also show the viewers, like, if we jump from verse 1 that says, surely we have given you kawthar, now it jumps into something else. Because we've given you this, now we're demanding you to pray. Therefore, pray to your Lord or to God and make a sacrifice. Okay, so because you've given me a river, that's Muhammad. This is directed to Muhammad. So Muhammad now has to pray and has to submit a sacrifice. Now, I'm not seeing any connection between Muhammad and myself here mm -hmm. in terms of the reward that he's receiving. Is this an extra prayer that Muhammad must pray? Is this a thanks, uh, uh, thanksgiving prayer? Is this like uh, going to the mosque and, and doing something special for God? And if Muhammad did all of that, what have I learned from what Muhammad have done? Basically what you're saying is, is that these first two verses don't make any sense and or have any application. Absolutely. No application, no coherence here. And if we read it, we don't even understand the meaning behind this whole story, as a matter of fact. All we learn that Muhammad basically, as he has done before, is trying to ex uh, I mean, basically exhibit himself to everyone around him that he is such a special prophet, that he has these amenities in heaven. In fact, in his claim, uh, when he was asked about this river, he said, well, when I ascended to heaven, I asked the angel who was guiding me about a beautiful palace that has a river next to it, and, and the angel told me that, well, this is a secret that God is preserving for you. Well, it's no secret at all now. We all know it. <laughs> so where is the secret in here? Right. And the thing that's also the most intriguing to me about this surah is, is that at least the first two in some vague way are poetically nice, but then in the third verse, surely your enemy 
We've gone from very, all of a sudden there are enemies. Exactly, because that's a good point. In verse 3, as ladies and gentlemen, you can see, there is a curse in here. So there is blessings for Muhammad, and the almost attached to that blessing is a curse mm -hmm. against the enemies. And, and you know, and I this really is one want of the our viewers to know. Well, this is one of the reasons that when you first read the Quran, you're like, what? We're going here for blessings and stuff, and now then we're cursing enemies? And this is a, uh, basically a and this is only three standard theme in the Quran. Exactly. And this is just a sample, a taste of what the Quran is all about. It's always separating two groups. Yes. Muslims and everybody else. And they're cursed. And they are cursed. Now, this is quite a difference between this and what the Bible says about love your enemies, for instance. Mm. Now, that's peace <laughs> right there. At least it would have been nice to say something like, surely your enemy will be envious for seeing these mm -hmm. blessings, you know. I can understand, well, you know, there is blessings and you want the enemy to at least be attracted to it. But why curse the enemy for something that, what is the problem here? I mean, what, what is the, I should say, the crime that the enemy have done? Exactly. And, and, and by the way, once again, for a book that's supposed to be so perfect, how come we're having to ask this question? Why doesn't it explain to us about the enemy? And as I mentioned, you know, I, and I want my viewers, especially those who can read Arabic, which is unfortunately, uh, you know, not a whole lot of people will understand what the Arabic is saying, uh, nevertheless even speak uh, the language, you will see that only one commentator alone, Al-Tabari, invested pages on trying to explain such simple, small, three-verse chapter that you would expect to at least grasp just by hearing it. And even people who heard it struggled with it because there is so many people that ask Muhammad about this particular name, Al-Kawthar. The, the other thing is, is that as a mathematician, we can do a long derivation that takes a lot of work, but we wind up with an answer. For all of this work this scholar did, he never came up with the answer. That is exactly He left you with true. a menu. Exactly, and when you study really the commentators, the classical commentators of the Quran, you always see multiple opinions. It'll always start like oh, yeah. the scholars have deferred on the meaning of this, and then you see pages, and then, and then at the end it will say, and God knows Allah best. Allah knows best. God knows best. Well, we know that God knows best, but if God wants us to know something, then why, why would us? he reveal it to <laughs> us? If he revealed it, my understanding is that he wants me to learn something from it. Exactly. But it's not so revealed. That is true. Now, I want to, um, you know, we're almost approaching the end of the, the show, and I want to talk uh, briefly about another problem found in the Quran that's called the variant text ah. of the Quran. And uh, I want you, Bill, to just try to maybe explain to me your understanding of the variant text of the Quran. For instance, we address this in our book, The Quran Dilemma. What was your impression about that? Well, my first story was, is there is no variation. That's, that's the big story. But when you start reading the Hadith, the traditions, you discover there were all kinds of fights and fussings about what was in the Quran, what was the right way to do it. So at first you're told everything's perfect. But then when you get beneath that, it's like, wait a minute, there's a lot of disagreement by people who are with Muhammad. That is very true. Uh, you know, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, when we're talking about variant texts, that mean when we look at a Quran and a verse in it, sometimes the verse has a word or two, or maybe the whole verse could be read differently. I want to use just a quick example found, for instance, in chapter 25, uh, uh, in, uh, in one of the chapters that you say in the Quran, uh, and this is in chapter uh, 2, verse 46. For instance, it says, 
who know that they shall meet their Lord and that they shall return to him. The word know here in Arabic, actually, there is a couple of ways of reading it. One is to think, one is to know for sure. Mm. So, are you thinking you're going to meet your Lord or are you sure you're going to meet your Lord? Very different. And that's basically the problem. And this problem stems from the fact that the original Quran, when it was written and compiled, which we'll talk about the collection of the Quran in the next episode, uh, you'll see that basically uh, these letters uh, lacked basically uh, vowels and lacked mm -hmm. markings and things like that. I want to show this to my viewers here. As you can see in this example, um, in, in this example, basically, it shows that the Quran has letters that has no vowels whatsoever, and it has dotting and markings, which was developed at 150 years after the collection of the Quran. We are approaching the end of our show. Bill, we enjoyed it as usual, and I look forward to our next episode. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you so much for joining us today in our uh, show, The Islamic Dilemma. We hope that you can go to our website and send us your emails and questions. Until then, I'm your host, Al Fadi. Make a blessings to you.